Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And obviously God's wrath on a number of occasions kept being poured out on these Israelites that were grumbling in the desert. And finally, as these spies were sent up to Kadesh Barnea a little bit later on in the, in the wilderness wanderings, you remember that story, right? That they all came back and all of these spies gave a wonderful report of what they saw, and that, that man, we can go for it, right? All of them in that way, is that right? Not all of them. No. Actually, only two of them were like that. And that particular occasion, obviously, follow when, when you read Numbers chapter 14, you see that God says, these ten times you have defied me, you have not been grateful to me, you have sinned against me. God says, as a result of my anger and my wrath against your sin, all of those that enter the promised land, 20 years old and above, are what? They're not going to go into the promised land. They're going to die here in the desert. So we see God's wrath poured out on this generation of Israelites. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that died in the wilderness, did not get to enter into the promised land. In fact, Moses himself did not get to enter into the promised land. He got to see it from afar, from Mount Nebo, before he died, but he did not get to enter into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies that, along with those that were 20 and under, when they went in, that then went into the promised land. So that was kind of the context here in this particular Song that or this this prayer that Moses is praying here, and the first two verses he talks about the eternality of God, and then in verses three through five he talks about the transitoriness of man. You can see that there in your Bibles if you're following along. He said in Psalm ninety verse one, "Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations." Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. He is without beginning, and He is without end. He is eternal. And He brings that out here in, his, in the first part of His prayer. And, but then He quickly talks about the very transitory nature of man. As you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or what is it yesterday when it is past, or is a watch in the night? You sweep them away with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. And of course, as you've read the Psalms, you've seen that over and over again, right? That, that our lives are but a vapor. They're but a shadow that appears for a brief moment and then it's gone. So here we have in the first part of this song, this prayer of Moses, the him talking about the eternality of God and then the transitory, the, the briefness of man's life. And what I would like to kind of zero in for a few minutes here is verses 7 through 10. He continues his prayer, and he says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Then verse 11 of that particular section says, who considers, the, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? A lot of people that have read this psalm, studied this prayer of Moses, that talk about, your God is talking about that the general span of a man's life is 70, perhaps 80 years of due strength. And yet, in the context of this psalm, Moses keeps talking about God's anger. He's talking about God's wrath. He's talking about the judgment of God against humanity because of his anger and wrath against their sin. You say, what's that all about? Well, I think it's, it's something that we need to consider here at the very, at the, at the very outset of, of our time together this weekend. And that, and that is this. Sin brings God's anger, His displeasure, and sin brings death. Sin brings death. It brings spiritual death. It brings physical death. It brings eternal death. Sin does. You remember that Satan told Eve in the garden, You will not surely die. God knows that if you eat of this, you will be like him. And of course, her husband is standing right there. Right there. He's standing right there. And let her take the leadership in that. And they fell into sin. And what did they discover? When we come to Genesis chapter 5, after the fall of man, when we look at the genealogy of Adam all the way up to Noah, we see the word death mentioned five times in Genesis chapter 5, or eight times in Genesis chapter 5. So-and-so lived so many years, gave birth to so many children, and then what happened? And, and then he died. And then so-and-so lived so many hundreds of years, and then he had so many children, and then he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you know that from, from uh, Adam all the way up to Noah, they were living upwards of a thousand years. You remember that, don't you? Thousand years. They were living a long time. They were living hundreds of years. And yet when we come to Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, we see that essentially God wipes the earth clean with the flood because of the wickedness that he saw among mankind. God views sin as extremely serious. He judges sin because he is absolutely holy. He is without sin. He is just. He is righteous. And he will not abide sin. Isaiah said that your sin separates you from your God. And so when we come back to Psalm chapter 90, and he begins here in these verses 7 through 11, he's been talking about his anger, his wrath. The general background of that obviously would be Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man. And as man enters into sin, into sinful humanity, all people born since Adam have been born in sin. We are, we are sinners by nature. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by our own action. We are all sinners. 
And because of sin, we have death. And when we look at the scripture after the flood, what do we see? We see that man's life, the length of it began to shorten. Yes, Moses did live to be, I believe it was to 120 years. Joshua, I think, lived to be 110 years old. But eventually, by the time we get to the Psalms, man's general lifespan was 70, 80 years if due to strength, maybe 90 years if you're Temple Moore, somebody like that. But it's, it's relative. Even if we were to live to be 1,000 years old, according to this Psalm, in God's eyes, it would be just a fleeting moment. So what brings the shortness of our lifespan? Ultimately, it is sin. It is sin. God brings death because of sin. God returns man to dust. And so that's why we do not flourish for very long. Now, I think that this is very important for us to understand because... As we go to verses 11 and 12, he basically begins to talk about this in view of the incomprehensible power of God's anger and of his wrath. We see the brevity of man's life. The brevity of man's life. And so people need God's instruction to use their time wisely. That's, that's where Moses is going here. Most people today don't connect mortality and sin, right? They don't. But those two are connected. If you go to a funeral, the reason you're at the funeral is because of sin. That person was a sinner. Even if they were saved by God's grace, they ultimately physically died because we are born in sin. And so our bodies will die one day if the Lord does not come back for us first. So here Moses prays that God would give them instruction to use their time wisely. In verse 12, he says, uh, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Bottom line, guys, even if God gives you 70 years, and by the way, if there's no guarantee that God's going to give you 70 years, if God gives you 70 years, if He gives you 80 years, if He gives you 90 years, you and I have a very, relatively speaking, a very brief lifespan. And so God, in light of that, says, stop, think about your life, number your days, number the years of your life, give serious thought to it. So when He talks about Numbering our days, he's not just simply talking about, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, 70 candles on birthday cake. No, no, he is talking, when he says number your days, number your hours, he is essentially saying stop and consider the brevity of your life. And in light of the brevity of your life, how are you investing your life? How are you living your life? And the fact that it's so brief. So he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. Make us to realize how short our lives are. Help us to plan out the use of our time wisely. Help us to gain a heart of wisdom, he says here. Wisdom here is nothing more than Skill. Help us to learn how to live 
skillfully, how to live righteously and holily and fruitfully before God. Fruitfully before God. So that is what Moses is concerned about here. And then in verse 17, he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's very possible that when we come to the end of this chapter, Moses is referring to this new, younger generation that is getting ready to enter into the promised land after the older generation has died off because of God's wrath against their sin. And so Moses is saying... Help establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish, Lord, the work of our hands. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, he kind of picks up on this theme of redeeming our time, redeeming the time. Ephesians chapter 5, drop down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Making the best use of the time. That word there, the time, refers to a fixed period of your life. Whether that's 40 years, 30 years, 60 years, 90 years, consider the time, he says there, making the best use of the time. We're to make the most of our time on this evil and perverse world to fulfill God's purposes for us and to pursue every opportunity for fruitful worship and service to the Lord. Again, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about the brevity of life and, and be mindful of it. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards, wasn't it? That used to outline all of these things that he was going to do every day. And one of, one of the things that he said, I'm going to do every day, is I'm going to stop at least once every day and I'm going to contemplate dying. I'm going to think about death. You say, well, was he just a morbid man? No, he wasn't a morbid man. He was just simply obeying what Moses says in Psalm 90 and Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Consider the brevity of your life. Guys, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been challenged with throughout my life is in the Psalms and other places in the Scriptures where the Psalms talk about being quiet before the Lord. Stopping, being still before the Lord? Do you know why it is so difficult to do that? Because our life, our perverse world, this perverse world system is not set up to encourage that in us, right? We graduate from high school, we go to college. Here we do all of our homework, then there are extra curricular activities that we go to and then here comes the weekend and, and you know there's six parties and five sporting events and 
Um, you know, and then we get this call and this happens and the other thing happens and something is just always right there in front of us to fill up our time. And very few people, very few men learn to stop, learn not to be controlled by the events of this world and rather take control and redeem their time before the Lord. That's what the psalmist is calling us to. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Don't get caught up in the rat race of life because that's where everybody else is. Now, just wanted, uh, I, I just, I thought, how, how can I kind of give these guys a, a sense of, of their lives? And so I decided to pull out some notes here from our some of the marriage and family seminars that we teach in Latin America. Obviously, I translated them for you. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> and uh, uh, before, and, and what I want to do, obviously, in, in our seminars, we kind of go into more depth in, into some of these things, and we're not going to have time to do that tonight. But uh, I looked up on, you know, famous Google. And Google is telling me that the life expectancy of a male in Virginia in 2022 is 76 years. Actually, I think it's at 76 years and four months or something like that, or maybe two months. So what we could do is we could divide 76 by the four seasons of life, leaving us with 19 years for each season, right? So the spring of life would be from birth to 19. The summer would be from 19 to 38. The fall of our lives would be from ages 38 to 57. And the winter of our lives would be from 57 to 76. And I guess if you live longer than that, you just have moved to the North Pole and started living. And that's in a It was Of course, any man-made system like that is, is always very arbitrary. The system that I like best is one that we're going to see after we look at this list here in Titus chapter 2, where Paul divides life in two stages between older men and younger men. Older women and younger women. We'll talk a little bit more about that. That's my favorite division of the transitions of life. So I realize that this is very, very uh, uh, arbitrary. And some of you are going to walk up to me after this is over and say, you know, my life has not been like that at all. That's fine. That's fine. Just don't even bother to tell me. This is just a general, a general idea to it, right? And I'm going to just kind of read through here very rapidly to kind of just give you a, a rapid bird's eye view of kind of your life. Since we said that it was so brief. First of all, newly married. Living with your parents, becoming one with your spouse, establishing your own home. Realizing your spouse married a sinner and that you also married a sinner. <laughs> Balancing loyalties to your spouse with those of your family of origin. Adjusting to a loss of personal freedom. Establishing mutual priorities and boundaries for your marriage. Finding good employment. Establishing adult status. Learning how to solve problems and establish priorities together. Adjusting to your role as a husband. Adjusting to being one flesh. That's just newly married. Then, here come the babies. That would kind of generally involve dealing with your wife not working. That's assuming that perhaps when you first got married, 
she was working, so she didn't have children. And so now, here come the children. She Perhaps she stopped working. So now you're adjusting to one income, making decisions about who to visit, whose family to visit, who are we going to spend Thanksgiving with, who are we going to spend Christmas with. You know, I know that you never struggle with stuff like that. But, you know, that's just part of life, marriage. Number three, adjusting to new physical, social, economic conditions and or moving to a new community and even a new job. Deciding on family size. Obviously, ultimately, God decides that. New growing responsibilities at work, in the home, and at church. Adjusting to an increasing loss of personal freedom. Experiencing a loss of privacy as a couple. Learning new roles as a father. Dealing with parental involvement and criticism of your parents. Uh, I met my brother here. We have a two-month, two-week, two-month. Okay, cool. See, he's just now we're adjusting to the new role as a father. Number nine, uh, part B, dealing with parental involvement, criticism of your parenting. Yeah, now I know that's never happened to you, right? You got married. Here the family starts to come along. And your mom or your dad don't think that you're doing something exactly just right, so they're going to tell you that, right? Well, that probably doesn't happen to you. But anyway, it does happen to a lot of people. Uh, number C, educating your children. Here where life is unfolding pretty rapidly here for us this evening. Deciding on the formal education of your children, including extracurricular activities, whether it's homeschool, private school, public school, balancing multiple grown responsibilities in your home, at work, in the church, your community, readjusting to a change of career goals that happens somewhat frequently, especially with men. Relating to your parents as fellow adults rather than as parents. Adjusting your goals and dreams to match actual reality. Discovering the additional cost of education and extracurricular activities and taking children to them. Then here come the young adults. You raise your children, here come the young adults. Learning to handle the growing independence of your children. Woo, that's fun. Accepting a new role in life with your children. Learning to handle differences of opinions and convictions with your spouse regarding the parenting of the growing adult children in your house. Reevaluating career goals and aspirations. Reassessment of progress and satisfaction in your marriage. Learning to handle the challenges and changes of menopause as your wife comes to that season of her life. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the morning. And then E, children leaving the nest, refocusing more attention on your wife, relating to your children as fledgling adults, adjusting to changing family size and needs, increased awareness of physical vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Children leave home and begin their own marriages and families, learning to cope with new members entering your family, accepting new responsibilities. And then, just like that, you become an empty nester. And as an empty nester, you learn to live or communicate as a couple again. And uh, one of the things that you should not allow to happen, guys, is you should not allow the years of raising your children to shut down the communication between you and your wife. We'll talk about that also in the morning. So if, you, if you're faithful in doing that, then when your children are gone and they left the house, then you and your wife are not going to have any trouble with your communication and with your union there. But sometimes that happens. 
Sometimes parents have to learn how to communicate all over again because there's no children in the house. All of a sudden, there's just the two of us. Oh, just you and me. We're going to have to learn to talk to each other again. Learning to be a father-in-law. Learning to be a grandfather. Preparing for retirement. Whatever form that looks like. Learning to relate to your children as adults rather than as your children. Helping and relating honorably to your aging parents. Handling aloneness. A quiet house, or and sometimes that aloneness, aloneness can lead to loneliness. Our, our, we we regularly keep our grandchildren for an overnight or two overnights, and almost invariably every time they come in our house, Grandmommy, we love coming to your house. It's so quiet. <laughs> it's so quiet. You know, grandparents' houses are quiet. That's because all the children are gone. Right? All the noise is gone. Well. You have to learn how to deal with that quiet house. And that will be one of the transitions that you go through. Handling physical and sometimes mental deterioration. Developing new opportunities, goals, and purpose for your life. And then G, ending the race, perhaps the most difficult stage of life. Adjusting to big changes in your lifestyle as you near the end of your race. That might include reduced income and limited freedom of movement, handling of the sale of the family house and dealing with all of the stuff that you've accumulated. You may have to learn to live in a new location, dealing with the loss of your spouse, dealing with the death of friends and family members, preparing for your own death, learning to fruitfully use your free time, adjusting to sickness and fragility, Accepting a new subculture status, learning new ways to be a contributing factor to the world and to the church, and death. So that, that took you about 10 minutes to live your life. <laughs> what, I wanted, what I hope that this does is I hope that it helps you to see how great life is. You, I don't know which one of these stages that you're in, but you probably are thinking that that stage may never end. The reality is, is that it will end very, very quickly. And you will be on to the next stage, and the next stage, and the next stage. And before long, your life is going to be over. It's going to be gone. And so, we need to think very, very carefully about how we are going to invest our time in this life. Well, Let's talk a little bit uh, from Titus chapter 2. So take, take your Bibles and turn over to Titus chapter 2. I just want to just, uh, spend a little bit of time here. I like to, in my notes, I have Titus 2 teaching for men, not just women. Uh, Carolyn was invited to a mother-daughter dinner during Mother's Day time. And there was a mother at the same table with her daughter. And the daughter announced, because they were getting ready to have their second child, and she announced to everyone at the table that uh, it was going to be a boy and that they had decided to name the boy Titus. And Carolyn said the mother kind of reacted in shock and awe and said, it's not Titus, that's a girl's name. I guess she'd only ever been to Titus 2 meetings where 
the role of women was taught. <laughs> if you've never studied Titus 2, you will still realize that it is a very important chapter, not just for women, but also for men. And so, I just want to bring out a few, a few truths here uh, as we kind of bring our lesson to, to an end here. It says there in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, with healthy teaching, with healthy doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. There's our word. Steadfastness means endurance. Steadfastness means persevering. And so Paul is telling the older men that they need to be growing in these particular virtues of sober-mindedness, being dignified and self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. So you see, as we grow older... We become older men. Um, we become weaker. You know, maybe we, in our 20s, we begin each day with 10 teaspoons of energy. And then in your 50s, that reduced down to 5 teaspoons of energy. And then in your 70s, that's 1 teaspoon. Of, and I've already spent my teaspoon, and it's not even moon yet, you know? So, as we grow older, and... We begin to face whether it's health issues or family issues or social issues or economic issues or whatever the issues, they can just kind of begin to pile up. And as older men, we, by God's grace, have to learn to be steadfast, to persevere. We should be known as older men as persevering men. We persevere through the trials of life, through the afflictions of life, through the challenges of life. We don't fall back. We don't give up. We don't leave. We don't tap out. We persevere through life. And as we grow older and older and older, we as older men should be known as men of steadfastness. Men who persevere. Men that when the going gets tough, don't check out. But they remain steadfast by God's grace. So, if we're an older man, that's what we should be looking toward. That we should be steadfast. And if you're a younger man, you need to understand that you will grow old faster than you realize, so that you should set these qualities in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, as a clear target to aim for while you are still young. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Have you ever read that description in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? About growing old. Have you ever read that? You know, the teeth don't work right. The hearing doesn't work right. And the bones don't work right. And nothing works right. And it just begins to all fall apart. Why? It's because it's part of the dying process. Dying process. That's why God said, don't wait till you're dying 
before you love me and serve me with all of your passion. Do it at, while you are young, before the evil days come. And you say, I have no pleasure in them. So, the godly man will stand strong under pressure. Just coming back to this word for perseverance or steadfastness in verse 2 of Titus chapter 2. The Greek word for perseverance paints a great picture of how God wants us to live. It literally means to remain under. To remain under. It paints a picture of being under a heavy load. And resolutely staying there instead of trying to escape. It literally refers to staying power. Perseverance is a virtue that grows under trial and testing. It is forged by fire. The man who will make a difference for Christ in this world is the man who will remain faithful under the weight of trials until God releases him from them. And of course, God has promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that he is not going to allow you to suffer more than you can handle, but will with that, he's going to provide a way of escape, and that way of escape is not for you to tap out, but rather it's to give you the grace to continue to stand up underneath that affliction until he's ready to release you from the heat. Until he has accomplished in your life what he wants to do by allowing you in that affliction. James talks about that, doesn't he? James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. James warns, James warns let perseverance come to full completion. So, what James is wondering, what James is saying there in James chapter 1, it says, don't tap out, guys. Allow the trials that God brings in your life to come to full completion. In other words, let them have their God-intended effect and impact on your life. If you wiggle out from underneath them without allowing them to do what God wants to do in your life before that work is done, then you are going to end up falling behind in your Christian growth and in your spiritual maturity. We come to I love cornbread. I'm from the South. Uh, I'm married Canadian and they don't really eat cornbread in Canada. And so she tried for them and she and she, by the way she is an outstanding cook. And perhaps the one thing that she never really mastered was cornbread. So, finally I went online and I found myself a good cornbread muffin recipe. And it really works. It really works. And I love these, these corn muffins. The recipe says to preheat the oven to 350 degrees and leave the muffins in the oven for 17 to 20 minutes before taking them out. Now, if I preheat the oven to 275 degrees and leave them in for 12 minutes, what do you think the outcome is going to be? Right. Not good. Conversely, if I preheat the oven to 450 degrees and leave them in for 30 minutes, what's going to happen? <laughs> you see, the point is, God 
the oven of the trials of your life ought to be. And he knows exactly how long you need to be left in those trials in order to bring about the mature character that he desires in your life. And if you tap out before the work of that heat is done, then you're going to fall back, James said. You're going to fall back in the growth that should be happening in your life. Have you ever met a person that's been a Christian for a lot of years, but they are still relatively spiritually immature? You, they, you, they might have been a believer for 30 years, and you meet them, and as you get to talking with them, you say, wow, I would expect that that person would have been much more spiritually mature than they really are. Why does that happen? Well, one of the reasons that that happens is because too many believers give in to a kind of spiritual infantile paralysis, causing them to remain in a state of childish backwardness in their spiritual life, rather than becoming mature, full-grown men. You know, most of us tend to spend most of our time with people our own age. This is kind of a Sometimes I'll, I'll just be preaching and I'll just say something completely unrelated. But in my mind, it's related. I said, how is that related? In my mind, it's related. <laughs> you know, most of the time, we, our best friends, our closest friends, are people roughly our own age, right? And, and obviously, that makes sense and there's something right about that. But you know what, guys? And I'll just speak to the younger men as well as to the older men. There is something about forging a friendship with an older man that has walked through the trials and afflictions of life and has not tapped out, but has allowed those afflictions of his life to grow him and mature him in Christ. I want to know that man. I want to watch that man. I want to observe that man. If I have an opportunity to get to know that man and talk to that man, I want to do that man. I want to do that. Because I want to be known as one who is steadfast and persevering in my walk with Christ. So there's absolutely nothing wrong about developing friendships with people your own age or younger than you. But don't be afraid of us old guys with gray hair and wrinkles. Talk to us. Develop friends. I remember listening to an interview with Billy Graham when he was very, very old. It wasn't he in his 90s when he died? And, uh, and the, the person interviewing said, what would you do different today if you could live your life over? And, and he said, I would develop more friends with more young people. Because he says, if you don't develop friends with more young people, then when you get to my age, there are no friends in your life. <laughs> so that's part of the wonderful nature of the body of Christ, right? Well, let me, let me just point you and bring, bring you down to verse 11. Verses 11. 
Because we've kind of talked about the, the command, the responsibility that we as Christians have to persevere, to be steadfast. But we need to understand that we cannot do that by ourselves. We can only do it by God's grace. And I'd like to, to, for you to see that. Because in this same chapter, it drops down there. Obviously, we're skipping a lot of teaching there. But I just want you to notice verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, when it says the grace of God has appeared, it's just simply referring to the incarnation of Christ. It's referring to his life, his death. His burial, His resurrection, His ascension back into heaven. In, in just two little words, He's referring to the work of Christ. For the grace of God has appeared. The Lord Jesus Christ brought grace. He brought an unmerited favor to those that do not deserve grace. We deserve the opposite of grace. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's anger. We deserve God's judgment. But God has brought grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we need to notice here, it says that this grace brought salvation. It brought salvation. Salvation is the launching point of this race of life that we are on. Salvation is. God must save you. If you are going to be a Christian, if you are going to be a participant in this race of the Christian life, then first of all, you must be a Christian. God must save you. You cannot save yourself. And beyond the day of grace, when the day of grace is over, there is no salvation after your death. There is no salvation after death. Jesus Christ accomplished your salvation through his perfect sinless life, through his substitutionary death on the cross for your sin, and his resurrection from the dead. Your sin has fallen on Christ, and for you to be justified, His righteousness must cover you. Christ took your place so that you could exchange all that you are for all that He is. And if that's not true of you, then the rest of what we're going to be talking about this weekend in the way of persevering by grace is really of secondary importance. In fact, if God's grace does not save you from your sin, then growing and persevering in grace is impossible. But notice, a lot of people stop here with just that part of the verse. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation from men. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now notice here that Paul almost personifies 
Grace. He says, grace is an instructor. Grace is a professor. Grace does not only come to save you, but grace continues to teach you as a professor to do two things. And what does it say? Two things that grace is going to teach you to do. First of all, grace is going to teach you to deny certain things. What, what are those two things? It's going to, you're going to renounce or deny ungodliness and worldly passions. And secondly, grace on the positive side is going to teach you to do other things. And what are those other things? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. You see, salvation is just the start. Grace saves you. God's grace saves you. But God's grace, present tense, continues to instruct you to deny ungodliness and to live a godly life. Grace does that, not law. Amen. There are too many people that develop a list of Do's and don'ts on their walls, right? <coughs> Whoa, don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. Guys, it is grace, it is God's grace that not only saves you, but it causes you to renounce all of the sinful things, and it causes you to add these godly virtues to your life. God's grace does that, and it is an ever-present instructor. It is an ever-present professor in your life. Grace is always doing that. You can be 90 years old, and grace is still going to be instructing you to deny ungodliness and to add these godly virtues to your life. Grace is going to do Grace does that. God's grace does that. I love that. It trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Living godly lives does not mean a legalistic adherence to human standards of morality. Paul doesn't tell Titus to generate a set of rules for Christians to obey so that they appear all nice and orderly and moral on the outside. Moralism has sent more people to hell than perhaps immoralism has. Rather to live a godly life, to live in a proper and becoming manner is to live out through the Spirit of God, the principles of the Word of God through a transformed heart. Through a transformed heart. Anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 verse 17 that you were slaves of sin, but you obey from the heart. You obey from the heart. To obey the word of God from the heart is not legalism. Instead, it is an act of love and worship for our Lord and Master Jesus Christ who gave up everything to save our souls. Now, how long do we do that? 
Well, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, while we're waiting on our Savior, what are we doing? We're denying ungodliness and we're putting on in our life every day, we're being instructed by God's grace to grow, to mature, to persevere in this Christian life. I like this little, there's a little phrase at the very end of verse 12. It says that we're, not, we're supposed to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the what? In the present age. In the now age. You say, did you not know that this world was under power of the evil one? Did you not know that we are living in a perverse, wicked, evil world? Yes, I didn't know that. Did you not know that our world is collapsing? Or yes, I see it every day. But guess what he says here? He says that this grace this ongoing work of God's grace in your life is going to teach you to renounce these ungodly things and to live self-controlled things. And it's going to teach you to do all of that to live godly lives in the now age, right now. In this age that is evil, that is perverse, that is wicked, that is collapsing all around us, God says that by His grace, He is going to cause His children to live godly lives in the now age. Well, I can't do that. If you knew the people that I were, yes, you can. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 12, we have conducted ourselves in the world and toward you Corinthians in the grace of God. I love that. In the grace of God. Well, Bill said that I could have 60 minutes for the teaching part. So I took 58. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we we thought about allowing roughly 15 minutes after each session, if you want to, for a time of Q&A, if there are questions that you would like to ask, comments that you would like to make. Obviously, I think it would be appropriate during this Q&A time, to, if we can, uh, to, to kind of zero in 